Hi, I'm Amanda Robson, a student journalist at Monash University. This Mojo News podcast is recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge and pay my respects to the people and their elders, past, present and emerging. Behind the gloss and the shine of the Yes campaign launch was a feeling of anger by those on the Throughout ABC journalist, Stan Grant has given the media pause and sent a strong message about racism. We will have recognition. What's happened to Stan Grant is unacceptable. You are listening to Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant. For decades, Stan Grant has been an influential figure for next-generation journalists like myself. His award-winning career and fierce public advocacy for Indigenous peoples has changed the face of Australian journalism. In recent weeks, Stan has joined Monash University as the founding director of the Constructive Institute's Asia-Pacific Hub after a very public exit from the ABC. It's here he plans to explore new ways that we can talk about old conversations. The Constructive Institute has big plans – It wants to enact a global cultural shift to the way news is reported, away from sensationalism and negativity bias. Undeniably, the biggest news story at the moment in Australia is The Voice. If agreed to by Australians via a referendum, The Voice will become a permanent advisory board comprised of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that will advise government on matters affecting First Nations peoples. The subject has attracted polarising political debate, fuelled by media outlets, clickbait, fear-mongering and algorithms that feed on outrage. Stan is with me now and will continue to join me in the lead-up to the October 14 referendum, where we will talk about how we can discuss The Voice constructively. Hi, Stan. So let's jump right in. You've been very public about why you've changed jobs recently. Do you want to provide us some insight into why you left the ABC and Q&A? Yeah, hi, Amanda, and hi to everyone listening. Um, Yeah, look, I've been in journalism for 40 years. In fact, this is the 40th year. Um, I first walked into a newsroom as a copy boy at the Canberra Times while I was going to university in 1983. So looking life, and I've seen enormous change across that time. Um, The advent of 24-7 news, the technological changes that have shrunk our world, the ability to broadcast or write or deliver content from anywhere in the world in real time has just been an extraordinary revolution. We are more connected. We are more engaged. We should be more enlightened, educated, and aware than at any time in our history. And yet, we're also seeing the fault lines. We're seeing seeing the increasing alienation, polarization, tribalism, particularly that's infected liberal democracies. Liberal democracy itself and its, its struggle to be able to deal with the weight that's being put upon it. The, con- the contest of voices that liberal democracy, because of the nature of liberal democracy, because it is built around a neutral space, a space that individuals bring themselves to, to form a collective idea of how we are governed, because that space is now more jammed, it's more contested, because there is a plurality of voices, we're struggling to hear, we're struggling to speak. 
And in fact, we're struggling to breathe. And I think if you look at the media's role in so much of this, it has become what I believe far too often the poison in the bloodstream that the media paradigm of conflict, confrontation, division, debate, rather than connection, constructive dialogue, um, generosity, kindness, forgiveness, understanding, because those things have been replaced by the endless contest I've felt for some time that we in journalism were failing, failing to deal with this critical moment in time, and worse, where there are flames, we are adding more fuel to those flames. So I I just felt for a very long time that I was part of the problem. I I don't in any way separate myself from this. I am you know, I've, I've been in this industry. I'm a practitioner of journalism. I know its failings and I know when it does things well. And I've felt increasingly in recent times part of the problem. And when the opportunity came up to, to join something like the Constructive Institute, it felt, it felt like a calling for me. It felt like a mission. It felt like something that aligned with my values And it gave me a sense of purpose that I didn't have in daily journalism, even at the ABC and even on a program like Q&A, I felt as if we were failing. You're speaking to me now from Aarhus University, Uh, right, where the Constructive Institute is. What are you taking in from the seminars that you are at? I've found, first of all, I think I've found a home. I think I've found people who are my people, people who also come out of journalism. You know, we're not, we're not people who don't understand this. We are, we are part of this industry. The people I'm working with here at the Constructive Institute have long histories and very, you know, prestigious pedigrees when it comes to the practice of journalism. They're like me. They're award-winning global journalists who have looked at it and found that it's not fit for purpose. So first of all, I've found a a community and a sense of mission and purpose. Beyond that, there's also the practicalities of doing this. One of the things they do at the Constructive Institute here in uh, Aarhus University is to bring fellows in, people who are working journalists, who come in and for a year they get to work on a particular project that is important to them. It may be the future of democracy. It may be how to, how to ma- marry science and journalism. It may be looking at economic fault lines. It may be looking at, at, at uh, demographic changes. How do we speak to a younger audience who are disaffected, who have lost trust and faith in journalism, maybe technology in journalism, all of those things. And they, they look at it through a constructive lens, not what's just what's wrong, but what are some of the ways of fixing this? How do we do better dialogue? We're looking at modeling new programs, not just the old style confrontational news and current affairs program, not putting two people next to each other who 
who disagree and can never get past their disagreement, um, but to actually construct programs that begin, first of all, with a recognition of the things we share and then defining the area of disagreement more specifically and focusing on being able to walk away from that discussion more informed and enlightened about the other person's opinion. In some cases, being able to, to agree, and when you don't agree, to work for a constructive outcome from that disagreement. So it's, it's right down to modeling new types of programs. How do you construct new programs? How do we write? How do we do interviews? How do we, how do we remove the language of journalism, which is always aggressive, conflict-based, divisive language? You know, a politician doesn't criticize another politician. A politician attacks another politician. You know, there isn't, um, there, there isn't a, a, a road accident. There is a horror smash. You know, how do we get away from that sort of language to, to connect with the lives that real people live? So I've seen this in action here at the Institute, and, and I've seen people who are dedicated to this and who are doing it. They've been doing it for several years now, and now we're able to join with them and to be able to develop these programs in the Asia Pacific, which is the most important area in the world when it comes to the necessity to do these constructive journalist, journalism well, because we know in the, across the Asia Pacific, it is, it is potentially a powder keg. I'm a journalism student at the moment, yeah. right? So what should I know? What are the key points that I should know about constructive journalism? Well, the first thing is constructive journalism is not just doing nice stories, right? We live in a world that is complex. We live in a world that is often challenging and frightening. We live in a dangerous world. We live in an age of catastrophe, whether it be the potential for nuclear war, whether it be the climate catastrophe that we see playing out in different parts of our world, uh, whether it be the, the technological change the rise of artificial intelligence, the, the uh, retreat of democracy and the increasing attraction uh, and success of authoritarianism. All of these things are, in, are alive in our world. Constructive journalism doesn't seek to put your head in the sand and, and try to imagine the, these things away, but looks at those things and says, but is that all the story? Or are there other ways of seeing our world? Yes, we do live in a world that is dangerous. Yes, we do live in a world that's divided and fraught and conflict-ridden. We also live in a world where we've never lived longer than at any other stage in human history. We have never been richer per capita than at any other stage in, uh, in human history. We are connected in ways that we've never been before in human history. We've eradicated so many of the diseases that used to... Um, used to take people's lives. Uh, we are living through an extraordinary age. We also live in a world where we get to share space, intimate space, with people of vastly different races, cultures, backgrounds, religions, nationalities, languages. And by and large, each day, we do that incredibly successfully. And yet, if you listen to the media, you would often think that it is nothing but catastrophe. Constructive journalism is giving the full story. It is being able to bring perspective. It is placing the challenges of our world alongside 
the success of our world. It is trying to move away, in my view, from the destructive language of journalism. And, you know, journalism narrates our world. We are storytellers and stories can frame reality. And I think in journalism, we frame reality far too often around conflict and division, around a sense of doom and catastrophe. Uh, and that's not the world that most of us live in. So how do we have the constructive engagement and where we disagree rather than seek to polarize or tribalize those, those disagreements, we seek to create places and spaces where we can come with our difference and we can have our disagreements in a way that does not turn us into enemies. Now, that's not to say that there are not people or there are not things that we need to call out. That's not to say that there are not absolute red lines. There is, there is evil in our world. There are things that are wrong in our world. And we need to see that for what it is. But we also need to see that for most of us, we don't live in those fridges. We don't live in that darkness, that we live in a world where we are trying to find space for each other, sharing the same air and trying to breathe together. I think constructive journalism philosophically is about filling the air with, with breath rather than taking the breath out of the room, rather than taking the air out of the room. And that's how I see the role, and I think it's vital right now. What would you say to those that just think that constructive journalism is all about the good news? Well, I think that's just that's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, I, I, especially if you're saying that to me because um, I have lived a, a spent a career reporting the worst of our world. I've reported war zones. I've reported natural disasters. I've seen the deaths of democracies. I've lived and worked in authoritarian regimes. I've been beaten up. I've been jailed. Uh, I've been under surveillance. Uh, I've lost friends who are no longer here with us today, who I worked alongside of. If anyone knows what our world is and the challenges of our world, it is me. As an Aboriginal person in Australia, my life is framed by the big forces of history. So if anyone wants to say that to me, then they don't know who they're speaking to. If they think that I'm in the business of good news, um, well, they haven't had my career. And I don't know too many people in Australia who have had my career. But in any, in any of the places that I've been and any of the things that I've seen, even in the worst of times, even in war zones where your life is not assured from one day to the next, I see the extraordinary human spirit. I see the extraordinary capacity for people to reach across those, those divisions. I see the capacity of neighbours to find a way to meet each other and not to kill each other. Um, I've seen this in our world. I don't think journalism gives us the full story. I think we focus far too readily on those points of conflict and don't see the full story. So constructive journalism is not at all just imagining that it's good news. I mean, we don't live in a world purely of good news. It is a philosophical approach to being able to frame these things in a way that gives us a fuller understanding of our world and creates the potential 
to have public discourse and dialogue across our difference by not in continuously framing things around division and conflict. So, you know, I draw on all of my experience. I draw on the terrible things that I've seen in our world and experienced in our world and the scars that I carry from that and try to ask myself this question. If we are failing, and I believe we are, then how do we do it better? And that's what constructive journalism is. How do we do it better? This is such an opportunity, and I know that uh, this is the opportunity for this generation to make a change. The biggest story in Australia at the moment is the referendum. The upcoming referendum is less than five weeks away. How could you constructively use techniques and constructive journalism to be applied to this debate? I think it's good that you've raised that because I think that lands precisely at the hinge point of our history. And it's not just Australia, it's global. How do we bring people from such different backgrounds together? How do we speak to the great wounds in our society? And at the same time, recognize the inherent strengths and successes of our society. Often these things appear irreconcilable, and yet they're not. They are the duality of existence. They go to the paradox and the contradictions of existence. All of us are a paradox. All of us carry our contradictions. We do in our personal lives and we do at a national level. I live in a country, Australia, that is by any measure one of the most successful countries in the world, a stable liberal democracy, a thriving, prosperous nation, a multicultural nation of freedom of expression and tolerance, a nation that is peaceful in ways that many of the countries that I've lived and reported from could only wish for. And yet at the heart of that is the reality that for First Nations people, my people, there has been a great price to pay for that successful Australia. And we haven't married those two things. The suffering of Aboriginal people, the ongoing suffering, the injustice, the failure to deliver um, the political architecture and outcomes to be able to deal with that sense of injustice, disadvantage, and suffering. And yet, on the other hand, the fact that for the majority of people in Australia, it is a remarkable, remarkable achievement. So in terms of constructive journalism, we're asking a very fundamental question, really. We're asking a question that if you take away so many of the, the, as much of the noise, it is this, is our liberal democracy capable of holding this tension and resolving or at least giving space for us to find a way to resolve that existential crisis, that difference between us? That's, that's the fundamental question. It's a question that weighs on nations all around the world. In France, they struggle with the idea of, of what it is the, to be French, the French identity, the post-revolution, liberty, egalitarianism, fraternity, lassite, these ideas of being free from rather than free to, um, that goes to the heart of, of, the, of the crisis in France as they try to marry a, 
a multicultural, multi-faith society with those foundations of French identity. And in Germany, where they still struggle with the overhang of the 20th century, um, in Europe generally, where I am right now, where this is a blood-soaked land from the Thirty Years' War after the, you know, the wars of religion, the the uh, the wars of the twentieth century, World War One and World War Two, that frame this country, the borders of the nations that are shaped by those conflicts. How do you, how does liberal democracy manage that? You look at the United States. How does liberal democracy manage the great challenges, the existential challenges of a nation that is a remarkable country? a beacon of democracy, the most powerful country in the world, and yet a country also founded in genocide of, of Native Americans and slavery. I mean, these are, these are big, big questions. And I think this question of the referendum for Australia poses those same issues for us. How do we resolve those historical things, those existential things? Can we resolve them? So in terms of constructive journalism, I think what we've seen in the destructive space is in the worst case the elevation or the, the validation of toxicity, particularly racism, and I've experienced that personally myself this year. Um, the fringe voices, whether they be in old language the left or the right, who don't represent the broad swathe of opinion in the country, those voices are almost given equal weight. They certainly have a very loud seat at the table, and that can distort the nature of public discourse and get in the way of asking what I think are very fundamental questions. Constructive journalism doesn't begin from the point of difference. It begins from the point of connection. So if I sat two people down from the yes side and the no side, and I asked them, what are the fundamental things that they want for their families? They want safety, security, prosperity, hope. They want to be able to live in a country where they can see a future for all. Okay, all sides can agree to that. If we look at the voice itself, both the, the two major parties, the, you know, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, agree that there needs to be recognition of Aboriginal people in the Constitution. Well, you tick that and you put that to one side. That's done. We don't have to argue about that. We agree on it. The next question is, both sides agree that there needs to be some sort of voice, some representative body that allows Aboriginal people and, our, and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to have input into policy directed towards them. Tick, put that to one side. Both sides agree that we failed in many ways. Tick, put that to one side. Both sides agree that we need to do better in closing the gap. Tick, put that to one side. If you go down, you can see all the points of agreement. So what are you left with fundamentally? Strip all the rhetoric and all the political noise and the political point scoring. You've left one fundamental question. Should the voice as a representative body be enshrined in the constitution? That's it. That is it. If all sides agree on recognition, symbolic, if all sides agree on a voice, if all sides agree on the failure of policy thus far, then we are left with this question. Should it be in the Constitution? The Liberal Party says no, but they're happy to legislate a voice. The Labor Party says yes. So what we are talking about then, in a constructive way, is our Constitution. What does it tell us about ourselves? 
Why is that such a hot button issue? What are the arguments for putting it in the Constitution? What are the arguments against putting it in the Constitution? Australians need to be informed about that. But that's not the conversation we're having. We're having a conversation that is dragging up everything else. We're trying to resolve 200 years of fraught history. We're trying to solve in in one stroke of the pen, a yes or a no, the vast socioeconomic disparities that exist between us. We're trying to resolve big questions of existential identity. What does it mean to be Australian? They're too big for us to resolve in this one referendum. And if that's where we begin, we are always going to reinforce the division and the difference. There is one fundamental question. Should it be in the Constitution? If we had a debate about that, and if we brought the things that we connect and agree on to a resolution of that one fundamental question, then the Australian public would be truly informed and we could make a judgment based on the one salient issue. Should it be in the Constitution? That is what it comes down to. Can our liberal democracy, as it is constituted, be able to hold that weight? That is the question. But I can tell you, Amanda, that is not the conversation we are having. We've had a conversation where people like me have been racially vilified. Two or three weeks ago, there was an article about the colour of my skin. That's what journalists are doing. Yeah. Journalists are writing ridiculous stories and giving voice to ridiculous ideas, indeed hateful, hurtful ideas, because they are incapable. They don't have the capacity to deal with the fundamental question. They're, they're like people on an, in an amusement park. They're looking for the next thrill. But politics is not about the next thrill, and our life is not about the next thrill. We're not having the constructive conversation. We're having the destructive conversation. Right now, the last bit of campaigning is ramping up in the lead-up to the the referendum on Saturday the 14th of October. Yeah. And we're seeing the no party have this slogan. If you don't know, vote no. And we've got a lot of people out there that don't actually know a lot about the referendum. So how can we constructively talk about it in a way that will inform the public? Well, of course, Amanda, they don't know because the media has not given them the opportunity to know. We are in a blizzard of, of noise. We... We are just swirling in this sort of vortex. There is no clarity. People are constantly, and politicians are constantly responding to the next diversion, the next distraction. There's no way I wanted to have conversation about the color of my skin or to deal with racism over and over and over again. Um, because, but we have not had the constructive conversation. If people, six years after the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, a year after the Prime Minister announced that we would go to a referendum, if people are still saying, I don't know, then that's on the media. That tells us that we have failed because that is our fundamental duty as the fourth estate of democracy, to ensure a public 
that is educated and aware enough to be able to fulfill their democratic duty, that is to vote on matters of national importance and select governments of the day. That is the role of the media. Now, if people are still saying, and if a no campaign is still saying, if you don't know, vote no, then that indicates a fundamental failure. Now, it may be strategic of some to be able to continue to create confusion and doubt, but the media's role is to be able to cut through that. And again, if we'd had the constructive conversation where we did not allow the diversions and the distractions, if we took all the things off the table that we agree on, we don't need to prosecute those things. We agree on those fundamental things. Then let's go to the point of disagreement and let's have that, that decent conversation that informs the public and takes the heat out of this discussion. That's the conversation we're not having. And so you end up with slogans like, if you don't know, vote no. Um, on the other hand, there has been a yes campaign that has also been criticised for not being able to convincingly inform people about what the voice is. So on both sides, there is this confusion in the public's mind on the eve of having to go to the ballot box and make your choice, yes or no. So there is a fundamental failure there, and I think that again comes back to the media and how we have allowed the diversions and the distractions to dominate the discussion. We have gone for the point of difference constantly. We have reinforced division. We have amplified hatred, and we have confused the public about something that we needed to bring clarity to. And that's why constructive journalism is needed and it's yeah. lacking in this debate. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about division and difference and diversions. As a matter yeah. of fact, like in media not long ago, they were debating about whether or not a cross or a tick would be counted on the ballot yeah. paper. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no... Amanda, how, you know, I can tell a five-year-old child to write yes or no on a piece of paper. I can say no, don't tick, write yes or no. That's all. That's all. That, 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 that is a five-minute discussion. You were given a ballot box, you, are, you must write the word yes or the word no. That's it. But of course, there's another diversion, another distraction, another layer of confusion. Uh, and the media would rather spend days mired in that mock confusion than just fundamentally allowing the Electoral Commission to say, this is what the process is, say yes or no. That's it. Move on. Media are playing such a big and important part in democracy. And I know that next week we'll be covering what media's role is in our democracy. But right now, do you have any constructive words for how we can talk about the voice in a constructive light and try and remove all that diversion and remove all that difference? Mm. Well, I think, you know, just to reiterate the point that I made, and that is that to not allow ourselves to be distracted, to not follow the diversions, to not allow ourselves to be trapped in an endless noise, but to look very clearly at what we are being asked. There is a very fundamental question 
and there is a simple yes or a no. And that is comes down to this, really comes down to do you believe that there should be a representative body for First Nations people in the Constitution of Australia that recognises First Nations people's place in this country and creates the capacity for First Nations people, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people, to be able to have input into policy specifically directed towards them. Um, now, there's a, there's a lot in that. There's a lot to discuss there. There's the, the role of the constitution. There is the question of the individual rights that are inherent to all within a liberal democracy vis-a-vis the, the group rights that may pertain to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people independent or separately to the rest of the country. Um, what are the challenges of that? What are the outcomes that come from that? Why is there a necessity from that? Uh, for for that, um, the question of the status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Um, there are things to learn from other nations, New Zealand, straight across from us, which is which has embedded the idea of the place of Maori people in that society that is distinct but not but not superior to the place of other people in that country and can those can the recognition of aboriginal and torres strait islander people maori people in new zealand or wherever we find these questions of indigenous peoples can that recognition and constitutional recognition seek to bring a strength to our democracy where it may already be lacking. Um, and there are arguments on all sides of that, really fascinating arguments that would involve constitutional lawyers, political scientists, historians, theologians, um, business people, um, you know, civil society. Um, there are so many layers to this. Then there are how we meet each other in the street as ordinary human beings occupying this space called Australia, um, that we bring our idea of Australia to that every single day, to not overlook the fact that every day Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other peoples of Australia meet each other in, in peace and, and, and harmony and with a shared idea of who we are in that country. There is a wonderful conversation to be had right across the spectrum from arts and politics to history to right across the spectrum of our society that enrich that discussion, that takes our difference and doesn't turn it into division, but turns it into a positive, constructive discussion about what our nation is and how do we live with the totality of our nation, not just aspects of it. That's the conversation we should have had. That's the conversation I hope we can have, but it is not the conversation we are having. And the same goes for so many other countries around the world where the media is amplifying noise, distraction, division, and sometimes, far too often, hatred, rather than the capacity to connect and bring a constructive approach to these really critical issues. I wish we could do that. That's what I seek to try to, to do. 
Um, and sadly, I think we are far too often failing to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stan, for having a chat with me. I know that it's early in the morning in Denmark no, where you good. are. <laughs> Mid-morning now. Well, it's evening over here, so I shall let you go and we'll be back next week. It's a pleasure, Amanda. Thank you to everyone. Um, have those discussions. Open your hearts. Open your minds. Find ourselves in each other. You know, if there is a, if there is a, 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 a phrase that I live by, it is by the, um, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur. And he once said, the shortest space to the self is through the other. We know ourselves through the eyes of the other. That's the constructive approach. So thank you so much. Coming up next week, Stan and I discuss how the media impacts the way we function as a democracy. We'll look at how fear-evoking reporting does more harm than good and why this has hindered our understanding of the voice. We'll also find out how constructive journalism focuses on strengthening democracy and how it can be used to aid our understanding of important political events, such as the upcoming referendum. A reminder to have your say in the October 14 referendum, you must be enrolled to vote. The deadline to do that is this Monday, September 18, by 8pm. Details on how to enrol can be found on the AEC website. Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant was research edited and presented by me, Amanda Robson. The artwork was created by Sabrina Toe. Alicia McMillan is my executive producer. And a special thanks to Stan Grant, the Monash Media Lab and the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash. <laughs>